Let's bow together. Father, yes, we do pray for the grace to rely on your son Jesus, that we would trust him more and more so that you'd be glorified in all that we do. Father, I thank you that you love us so much and you just continually have demonstrated that love in sending your son Jesus and his love for us that he willingly came and died for us. And Father, we are your children, we are your people, and you are using your word by your spirit to change us. And I pray you would do so this morning, that our hearts would be ready to receive your word, that we would respond as you desire, so that you'd be greatly glorified. Lord, we thank you for this time and commit it to you now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in uh, Malachi chapter 3, the Lord God says that you'll be able to distinguish between the righteous and the wicked by those who serve the Lord and those who do not. The reality is when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we uh, were delivered from the domain of darkness. We were delivered from our sins. We served ourselves and we were slaves to sin and we were delivered to serve a good and gracious and kind and loving God. And we now have a true, genuine purpose in serving and exalting him on earth as we prepare and and our sojourners on our way to our heavenly glory because of Christ. So if you're a true believer, you're a servant. And we are servants, and servants do what? They serve. And so I would ask you, are you serving the Lord? You know, we serve the Lord in different ways, and the body has different giftings, and those giftings come together Uh, to bring about the result the Lord desires under the headship of Christ. And within the serving, there are differing gifts and differing ways and ministries in which we serve, but we are all servants. Now, if someone was to ask you if you cared about the servants, uh, the the work of the Lord, if you cared about it, I'm sure you'd probably say, yes, I do. Now, the question would be, what work do you care about? Is it the work that God is doing through you? Because that's certainly important. But do you care about the work of the Lord that he's doing through others that you may be working with? Today, we're going to see how we can truly understand and know if we actually do care about God's work in other people. You see, because we can become very self-focused. We become very, very self-focused. And today we're going to begin a new study in the book of Nehemiah. And so would you turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah? And it's been a lot of preparation to get ready to do this. I I don't feel adequate, and I never do, but God is adequate, and so I'm thankful for that. And I pray that we will be blessed uh, as much as I've been blessed in my preparation for this wonderful book. Now I want to give some context to the book of Nehemiah. It's going to be a little bit longer today uh, because we we need to grasp... Uh, this historical context, which is very helpful for interpreting the actual book. So let me go back a little bit. Uh, now, Scripture reveals that in Genesis, uh, God created Adam and Eve. Now, I'm going really far back, aren't I? Yeah. <laughs> and he created them in his own image, and they were blessed. They were blessed. But Adam sinned, disobeying God and listening to the voice of his deceived wife. From that, sin entered into the world. And within that, man lost blessing and now lives in a constant state of cursing before the Lord because of sin. 
And we are in, and not cursing, but we're in a cursed world in the constant state of sin. But God always had a plan to redeem and restore man, and it would be through Eve's seed, Jesus Christ, that Satan and sin would be crushed forever. Now in Genesis, we see this plan begin to take shape uh, as God calls Abraham and makes an everlasting covenant with him. And within that, he revealed the gospel in seed form, that in Abraham's seed or descendant, all the nations would be blessed. Now within that, we see that it was through his descendants. If we follow them in Genesis, Isaac, then Jacob, renamed Israel, we see that the nation of Israel is born in his sons, in Jacob's sons or Israel's sons. And we see that God fulfilled his word to Abraham, bringing Jacob and his sons, Joseph, to Egypt, and that they would multiply and then be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. It's at this point I want to share a brief timeline of what happens with the nation of Israel to get to the point of where we are in Nehemiah, which will be very helpful in understanding what's going on. So with that in mind, in 1445 B.C., after the 400 years of oppression, we have the exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt. And then at Sinai, God made a conditional covenant with Israel, giving them the law. And then they were 40 years in the wilderness because of unbelief. Remember Kedesh Barnea? Yep. Then in 1405 B.C., on the plains of Moab, Moses restates the law, Deuteronomos, Deuteronomy. And in that, in, verses, in chapters 28 through 30, he shares the blessings and cursings in relationship to their covenant relationship uh, to the Lord. They are blessed if they obey. They are cursed if they do not. And it is within this, uh, Moses makes it clear that if they disobey, they would be severely disciplined and expelled from the land. Deuteronomy 28.15 But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe and do all his commandments and statutes which I charge you today, that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And within that, that was being expelled from the land. And we had the rallying cry of the pre-exilic, pre-exile, pre-exilic prophets, repent or you will be judged. You see that throughout those prophets. And then after Moses died, Joshua, he was commissioned by the Lord and led a 45-year conquest of the land. And it's here we see that Israel did not fully obey the Lord because they did not drive out the inhabitants of the land completely. And Judges reveals in the context of that sin, there was an ever spiraling downward for Israel. And within that trend of sin, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Around 1095 BC, 1 Samuel 8 reveals that sin continued as Israel demands a king. And thus rejected the Lord as their king. And God gives them their desire and they got Saul. This begins the kingdom period of 490 years. And it is within this period that David, who would follow Saul as king, that God would use and make an everlasting covenant with him, Second Samuel chapter 7, that your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now David's son Solomon became king and built a splendid house for the Lord. 
and he in this temple uh yet solomon we see sinned he went astray he went after many foreign women and followed their gods first kings 11 and because of his sin israel was divided in the kingdom was divided in 931 north and south israel and judah 10 northern tribes and two southern tribes first kings 11 two kingdoms Now, even though the prophets continued to warn of impending doom because of sin, in 722 B.C., in accordance with God's discipline, the northern kingdom is taken into captivity by the Assyrians, 2 Kings chapter 17. Now, although the kingdom of Judah remained, they also continued in sin from king to king. Uh, Yet in 622 B.C., King Josiah brought a short-lived reform, out of Judah, after finding the law, there was a little bit here and there of a righteous king every little bit, but it was, by and large, they were wicked in sin. And then in 605 B.C., uh, Pharaoh Necho was defeated uh, by uh, in Carchemish by Nebuchadnezzar, which put Babylon as the world empire at that time. And at this point, Nebuchadnezzar, ultimately under the sovereign hand of God, turns to address his Jewish problem. And in 605 B.C., and I think I said 605, early 605, same year, he lays siege of Jerusalem. And he takes his first set of captives to Babylon. This is from, from Jerusalem and Judah, right? Second Kings chapter 24 and Daniel chapter 1. And among the captives, we have Daniel and his three friends, and we have Ezekiel, and, and Ezekiel is still there in, in Jerusalem. Then in 597, Jerusalem was under siege again, 2 Kings 24. That records that 10,000 Jews were taken captive to Babylon. And it's in this deportation that then Ezekiel was taken, Ezekiel 1 and 2. Then in 588 B.C. to 586 B.C., remember it goes the other direction, the numbers, for 18 months we had the third siege of Jerusalem. And it was a gruesome ordeal that was predicted in Deuteronomy chapters 28 to 30. And after this siege ended, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was demolished, and the, those who were not killed were taken captive on a final exile to Babylon. As ex, ex, Ezekiel 33, 21, 2 Kings 25. So there were three deportations to Babylon, one with Daniel in 605, 597 with Ezekiel, 586, where Jerusalem was destroyed. And the temple was destroyed. The city and the walls torn down. Now, during this captivity, which would be 70 years, basically, that's what God would share. That's how long he was going to have them there was 70 years. During this captivity, the Persians defeated the Babylonians in 539 B.C. And it's at this point King Cyrus took over and changed his foreign policy concerning captive peoples. And in 538, he decreed that the Jews could return to their homeland and rebuild the temple. Let me share this uh, portion from Ezra chapter 1. Now, in the first year of King Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus, Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing, saying, Thus says the king of Persia, The Lord, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judea. And he goes on to give them the opportunity for Jews to go do so. And we see we have this first 
uh, return out of three returns. We have three returns that we're going to see, Nehemiah being the third return, Ezra being the second return, and this being the first return here. In this first return, we have recorded in Ezra, chapters 1 through 6, talks about the first return. Then in Ezra, 7 through the end, that's the second return. It's split up, by the way, and I'll talk about the dates in a minute. So in this first return, we have uh, about 50,000 devout Jews who chose to leave Babylon, where they had become very comfortable, and they returned to their beloved Jerusalem so that they could worship Yahweh and rebuild the temple. And within a year, the foundation of the temple had been uh, laid, as our chapter 3. Yet unfortunately, we see that there, after they laid it, they stopped building because of threats, because of the local Samaritans and an injunction from the Persian Empire. And then uh, after these insurmountable things, they stopped for a while. But yet, when those things were out of the way, they didn't get back to the work. And it was 16 years before they got back to building the temple. And that's what we see in the book of Haggai. And, and we have Zechariah and part of Ezra. And they did end up getting about the work uh, based on the prophecy of uh, Zechariah and Haggai. And they completed the temple in 516 B.C. And as I mentioned, it's important to realize that Ezra chronicles these two time periods. First of all, Ezra 1 through 6 is the first return where they ended up rebuilding the temple. Ezra 7 through 11 is the second return 58 years later in which uh, Ezra himself comes to the land. And in between that is the time of Esther, is the time of Esther, in between the first return and the second return. Now in this second return, as I said, some 58 years uh, after, the uh, 58 years in, in 5, excuse me, 458 B.C., where Ezra the scribe and, and a priest, he brought 2,000 men plus their families to Jerusalem along with treasures for the temple that the king had allowed him to take. And also King Artaxerxes had given him the authority to establish the law in the land based on the scriptures. And so that's the second return, and that is with Ezra. Now, from this point, about 13 years later, now we have the third return, which is Nehemiah, and that is where our book is. And that is in 444 B.C. Now, it's interesting. Think about it. If, uh, if uh, uh, Esther, whose uh, husband would be the dad of the king we'll see in actually Nehemiah, if Esther had not been... Uh, led by the Lord and had obeyed him, there wouldn't be a Nehemiah and there wouldn't be a, uh, an Ezra. But God was sovereign to use them to protect and, and, and protect the Jews and his promises. So then we come to this third return from exile, and it is in 444 B.C., and that is the time in which this book is centered. Okay, a lot of context, but hopefully that makes more sense. You can put together Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, how they fit together. Hopefully you understand that now. And so with that in mind, let's get to our passage, where I believe we're going to see, really by uh, Nehemiah's example, how we can know if we really care about the work of God. 
You see, sometimes we care about the work of God that God may be doing through us, or we care about exciting works of God or whatever it might be, maybe. But do we really care about what he is truly doing through his servants? Do we really care about it? Turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4, but we're going to read up through the end because it is all connected. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of uh, Hakaliah, now it appeared, now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant is there in the province who survived the captivity. Excuse me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. That's what we're going to look at today, but let's just continue and look at his prayer here. And I said, I beseech thee, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open to hear the prayer of thy servant, which I am praying before thee now day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, thy servants. Don't forget that. Confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, and I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against thee and have not kept the the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which thou dost command thy servant Moses. Remember the word which thou didst command thy servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you, though those of you who have been scattered were in the midst, in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. And they are thy servants. Notice that again. And thy people whom thou dost redeem by the great power of power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, may thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and the prayer of thy servants who delight to revere thy name and make thy servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. It's very clear, as we will see, that Nehemiah understood that these uh, Jews in Jerusalem were God's servants. And they were those who revered, they delighted to revere his name, just as Nehemiah did. We're going to see that. So how can we know? How can we know uh, if we truly care about the work of God? Well, I think, first of all, our interactions with our brothers and sisters should include a desire to know about his people and work. What is he doing in the context of the body of Christ? What is he doing? Let's take a look at our passage. Verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it came up, now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year that I was in Susa, the capital, 
that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men of Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. Here we have the book. It is named after Nehemiah. His name means Yahweh comforts, the Lord comforts. And he is said to be identified as the son of Hakaliah, which means wait for Yah or wait for Yahweh. Those are good names. Uh, Nehemiah, it's quite clear, is the one who wrote this book. Verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, pretty clear. And throughout this book, we see the third, the uh, first person used quite a bit. I, I, I. We see him talking very clearly. He even includes we, I and we. Now, the timing of this book, we have a very clear date given by Nehemiah. It says here, now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susan, the capital. And if we look at chapter 2, verse 1, it says, and it came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. So when he says the 20th year, he's speaking of the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. Now, this would be the son of the king uh, Xerxes or Azurias, who was married to Esther. That's what we think. And so then it's within the 20th year of his reign, and it is in a specific month. And this month of Chislev was November, December-ish of probably 445 uh, BC, and then it would move into the rest of the book, which is centered around 444 uh, BC. Now, what do we know about Nehemiah? Well, in the end of chapter 1, we see that he was the king's cupbearer. He was the one, probably he was, uh, he was, he was the king, he was the cupbearer to the most powerful man in the world at this time. The king of the Persian Empire, King Artaxerxes. And a cupbearer was an official of very high rank in the royal court, and it was their duty to serve the drinks to the royal table, and because of fear of poisoning or whatever it might be, that person would be, have to be extremely trustworthy. And they would be those who would have to even test it themselves first. This position would not be given to anyone unless they were completely trusted and reliable. Nehemiah was a trustworthy and reliable man, evidently just because of the position he was placed in. But as we're going to see throughout this book, he was also diligent, faithful, a man of prayer, a man who trusted the Lord. He's a godly man, and as he identifies in chapter 1, he is the Lord's servant. He is a servant of the Lord. He sees himself as a servant while he's given the, the king his drinks. Now, he's also going to go off and serve, as we're going to see, and help these Jews out, but he is a servant of the Lord. He is a servant of the Lord, and he identifies himself with those who delight in, in, in revering God's name. They delight in it. And there's not a lot of people who delight in revering the Lord's name. They delight in songs and singing and stuff, but they don't delight in seeing Christ exalted. But Nehemiah knew that's who his brothers and sisters were. Those who delight in revering the Lord, those servants. And so then he was a good guy. He was a good guy. Now, within this book, we're going to see, and I'm going to give you a general overview of the book, but it's really, the overview doesn't do it justice, so don't, don't hold on to that. We'll see what it's about when we go through it. But basically, chapters 1 through 7 deal with the reconstruction of the walls that surrounded Jerusalem. We really deal with the reconstruction of that, but really the spiritual 
issues and problems related to that and the overcoming of those things by faith in the Lord and trusting in him. And then in chapters 8 through the end, that focuses on the spiritual reconstruction of the people, I believe. So with this in mind, take a look at our passage. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year. I was in Susa, the capital. Folks, he was in Susa, the capital. And it was during the 20th year reign. That was 445 a month of Chislev, this is in the wintertime. Uh, and so Susa was the capital of the Persian Empire. The capital of the Persian Empire. And on an interesting side note, Esther would have been in the same capital approximately 33 years earlier. 33 years earlier. So with that in mind, Nehemiah's in the capital. He's obviously performing the duties as responsibilities as cupbearer. And something happens. Verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year while I was in Susan, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them. Notice he asked them, by the way. He asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. Here we have Hanani, this is Nehemiah's brother, and some men from Judah. They had come to Susa, this is the capital of the Persian Empire. And what does Nehemiah do? He asked them, and he asked them very specifically about those Jews who had been delivered from captivity, in essence, by, by going. These would be the ones that had gone the first and second, and actually the ones that were left from the first, and in the second uh, return under Ezra. And he's asking about them, and he's asking about Jerusalem. Jerusalem. We're going to see it's very important. If you are a follower of the Lord, you want to know about Jerusalem. Uh, Later on, we're going to see it is the place that God chose to reveal his name, for his name to dwell. It's a very important place. And the earthly Jerusalem reflects the reality of a spiritual reality. It's a very important place. So he wants to know about those who survived the exile and had returned to Jerusalem. Now this is, uh, this is at this point, as I mentioned, there were two returns before this. The first return was 90 years before that, so there, those, those guys are probably gone. But the second return here we see was with Ezra, with Ezra. So Nehemiah is inquiring. He's concerned. And it's interesting that by his inquiry, and thus, as we'll see, by his reaction, which we've read already, that Nehemiah probably was not expecting the report that he was given. By his, mere, his reaction of, 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 of mourning and praying and fasting, he wasn't expecting to have news like this. It's my thought he was probably expecting a good report. You know, those uh, in... Uh, exile who stayed there and had not returned, they were living a pretty comfortable life. They were living a comfortable life. It was more difficult to go and serve the Lord, actually. Isn't that the way it is? When you serve the Lord, it becomes difficult. If you don't want to serve the Lord, hey, comfy life, just for now at least. And so I believe he was concerned initially about them, how they're doing, but he didn't understand how bad it was because his response shows that he was not expecting what he heard. 
because he's going to pray and he's going to make a request so that he can actually go help, as we will see. So then, Nehemiah is not only interested in the Jews, he's also interested in about, about Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now we have this, uh, this, 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 later on he's going to quote the Lord, the place where I have chosen, verse 9, for my name to dwell. God chose to identify with the Jews and thus Jerusalem, as we will see. That's where he put the temple, where he would have his name dwell. So uh, Nehemiah is very concerned about it. He's concerned about the things of God, by the way. He's concerned about God's servants and their tasks that they're doing for the Lord. And he's concerned about the Lord's place where he has designated to bear his name, to have his name dwell. So then how can we know if we truly care about the work of God or or if it's just lip service? Well, we need to see from Nehemiah's response that he was concerned. He was inquiring of them, how's it going? How's it going there? He was concerned about the work of God's servants in Judah and Jerusalem. His inquiry reveals that concern. And brothers and sisters, our interactions with one another are telling. What in, what's important to us is what we talk about. If God's people and his work and his name are important, then we're going to be interested And when we talk to his servants about how it is going. How is the work of the Lord going in the context of this church or that portion or this and this? How is it going? How is the Lord doing in, in you guys? How is it, how's it going? Our interactions are going to show some type of a desire to understand and know. I tell you, it's always encouraging when I talk to believers who are interested about what the Lord is doing through the work of the ministry. It's, an, it's a blessing to me because they're interested not in me. They're interested in the work of God in the ministry. And it's a blessing. And as we're going to see, when there are difficulties and threats, they're concerned and they pray. Just like Nehemiah is concerned and praying. You see, folks, if you're not serving the Lord or you don't desire to serve him, you got nothing to talk about regarding serving the Lord. But if you desire to serve Jesus, you're going to hang out with those who are serving Jesus. And that's going to be, not all the time, but some of your conversations are going to be concerned because that's what is important to you. And so Nehemiah could have asked a whole bunch of questions, but he was concerned about the servants in Jerusalem and Judea and Jerusalem itself. In Acts chapter 14, we see when Paul and Barnabas had arrived and gathered to the church, this is Acts 14, 27, they gathered together and they began to report all the things that God had done with them. This is what God is doing. This is what God is doing. And they evidently wanted to hear it. And how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples, it says. So then how can we know? We're going to want to be interested about his people and the servants. Those, you know, if you're part of this body, you should be interested about how is the ministry of ETS going? How are things going? How is the preaching and teaching going? This is part of the ministry we serve together. You're over there. We're over here. We're working together. How are these things going? There's going to be interest. It's going to be interest. Because as we're going to see, 
uh, Nehemiah saw himself as a servant of the Lord. And he saw those in Jerusalem as servants, those who had sacrificed to go there to serve the Lord. And he's going to find out that things are not good. And it's going to tear him up because he identifies with them and with the Lord in his work. And the same thing should happen for us. Take a look. Notice uh, Nehemiah exhibits a concern for the work of the Lord by his response, by his response. So he inquires here, he says, uh, he, he inquired from them, I asked concerning, it's the middle of verse 2, concerning the Jews back in our passage, Nehemiah, who had escaped and survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. This is a report that is not a good report. It's a distressing report if you care about the work of the Lord and God's people. It's a distressing report. The term remnant, or literally those left, who had left captivity, that's how you could, you could translate that, who are now in the province, out of captivity, there's some translation issues there, but they're in the province, that is, that is Judah was a province of Persia at this time. They are in one great distress. Now, you could literally translate this in great evil, in great evil. And then it says, and in reproach. Things were not good. One translator puts it this way. The remnant that remains from the exile there in the province are experiencing considerable adversity and reproach. Considerable adversity and reproach. It was tough for these Jews. They were in great distress. This word translated great, great, great distress or great evil speaks of opposition they were facing in context. And they were facing it certainly from the Samaritans and they were facing it from Moabite and Ammonite and Arab foreigners that we're going to see later on in the book. You see, when you serve the Lord, when you are sold out to serve him, there's going to be opposition. And this opposition uh comes uh, as we see and we saw we'll see this that every group that goes out of out of exile to serve the lord faces opposition they did back earlier and they were right here and we'll see it in this book <coughs> you see god is a gracious god a good god but because of satan uh those who are in satan's domain are enemies of god turn to psalm 83 Psalm 83. And as you turn there, what we're going to see is that when God's people are in distress as they're serving them, they need to be encouraged and they need to be prayed for and they need to be refocused on the Lord. And that's what Nehemiah is going to do, by the way. That's why we need to be aware of what's going on. You all should be aware whether I'm encouraged or discouraged as your pastor. You should be one to know that. You should be sensitive to that. In, and as we serve together, we should be aware and desiring how each of us are doing in the context of this ministry, not simply the day-to-day realities of this life that everybody has, whether they believe or not. Psalm 83, a song, a song of Asap. O God, do not remain quiet. O God, do not be still. For behold, thine enemies make an uproar, and those who hate thee, there you go, have exalted themselves. 
They make shrewd plans against thy people, and they conspire together against thy treasured ones. We've had that with our body. We've seen it. And he says here, I have, they have said, come, let us wipe them out as a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. That's pretty serious, isn't it? For they have conspired together with one mind against thee do they make a covenant. The tents of Eden and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria have joined with them. They have been become a help to the children of Lot. Now we're going to see uh, the children of Lot have a lot to do with the, the difficulty that's going to be in Nehemiah, by the way. We're going to see that. What did the Lord say in John 15? If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. We've got to know that. If, the, if, if you were in the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore if the world hates you, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. They persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Now, we might get into some fatalistic attitude and say, okay, the world's going to hate me, it's going to be bad. Yes, it is, but within the difficulty, God wants to encourage us not to give up, not to, to, to be shaken up, but to trust him and to rejoice in him. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The Apostle Paul shared that it has not only been granted for Christ's sake to believe in him, Philippians chapter 1, but also to suffer for his sake. He would share in 2 Timothy chapter 3, indeed those who desire to live godly will be persecuted. It is coming. We're not to be surprised at the fiery ordeal, Peter writes, that comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening. There's going to be difficulties. There's going to be considerable opposition to the work of God. But yet within that, we need to not give ourselves over to that, but allow God to encourage us that we would press on and continue in the work for his glory. Those who delight in his name be exalted, right? So then back in our passage, they were experiencing considerable opposition, great distress, great evil. And notice, end of verse 3, they were in reproach. They were in reproach. And they said to me, the remnant of the province who survived the captivity and are in great distress and reproach. The term translated reproach is translated elsewhere in the scriptures. Contempt, disgrace, reproach, reproaches, scorn, shame, taunting. You know what? Satan does these things to try to discourage the servants of God. And folks, we need to be on the lookout, as was Nehemiah, for those servants who are discouraged or being discouraged, that they would be encouraged and they would complete the tasks and not give up that God has given them to do. These Jews were being shamed, disgraced, taunted. Why? Well, later on in Nehemiah, we're going to see clearly that the enemies of God wanted to thwart the work of God, and so they were approaching God's people, trying to discourage them to quit the work. You see this in some passages. Let me share some passages in Nehemiah that we'll see a little bit of a picture of it, and then we'll see it when we get into them over the next few weeks. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. 
And this is after Nehemiah wisely and secretly inspects the walls at night. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the bad situation we are, that we are, we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate, its gates are burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. You know, walls protect us from enemies. And in some people's lives, the walls are down because we're not trusting the Lord. And we're going to see that we need to trust him completely and rely on him. And here, these physical walls of Jerusalem, the, the city that was, that was where the Lord has chosen to dwell, is in ruins. It's in ruins. And we have that with some people, too. Where God has chosen to dwell, their lives are in ruins, and they need to be reconstructed. But sin has to be dealt with, as we will say. So then he says, let's, let's take care of this, rebuild the wall that we will no longer be reproached. Obviously, the enemies of God were saying, look at this, these Jews, you're God's people, look at your, your walls, your city's a wreck. What do we see in chapter 4? Notice in chapter 4 of Nehemiah, this is after a specific instance of the Jews being reproached as they're trying to rebuild. They're trying to rebuild. And so we hear some of the mocking in the midst of this, by the way. Some of the mocking in the midst of their rebuilding. Chapter 4, verse 12. Or no, chapter 4, verse 1. Now it came about that when Sanballat, we'll hear about him later on, by the way. When Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and did what? Mocked the Jews. And he spoke in the presence of his brothers and all the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from dust, the rubble from the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, Even what they're building, if a fox should jump on it, it would break their stone wall down. Now, these guys were saying these little insults, but they were insults that were demoralizing God's servants. And notice what, in that reproach, notice what Nehemiah says. Here, O God, and this is the solution, go to the God, by the way, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up as plunder in the land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let their sin be blood, not let not their sin be blotted out before thee, for they have demoralized the builders. It's a serious thing to demoralize God's people in God's work, by the way. God takes it very seriously, as we see through Nehemiah. So they were being verbally persecuted, reproached. They were being demoralized so that they wouldn't complete the work. Now, later on in chapter 5, verse 9, Nehemiah, while correcting the Jews in their sin, he had to deal with some sin issues. He made it clear that the nation's enemies were the ones reproaching them. Look at chapter 5, verse 9. And again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. That's the thing that we're going to get there. He has to reproach them, or not reproach them, but correct them because of sin. Should should you not walk in the fear of God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? Hey, you shouldn't be walking in sin, walk in the fear of God because our enemies reproach us. Right? And what does he say the enemies are? The nations. They're foreigners. They're not Jews. In chapter 6, we see the enemies of God's people try to trick and trip up uh, Nehemiah so that they can reproach him for sin. 
And so they basically we see this guy, Shehemiah, who was hired by the bad guys to frighten Nehemiah. Look at chapter 6, verse 13. He was, he was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly in sin, so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. That's what the bad guys were doing. They were reproaching the Jews. They're reproaching the Jews. And so the report that Nehemiah gets is that there's great evil, there's great distress and reproach. And this breaks them up. But not only does this break them up, there's something else that they say has happened or is, or is, 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 is going on there. Back in our passage, great distress and reproach, and look at the end of the verse, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. There was the wall that goes around Jerusalem and there were gates that went around. You can look in Revelation where you see the, the new Jerusalem coming down with its wall and its, and its gates, by the way. Kind of interesting, by the way. But here the physical Jerusalem was in shambles. Now the temple was functioning, it was operating. We're going to see there's some issues there later on in Nehemiah, by the way. So he hears the walls broken down and burned. I think Nehemiah is probably thinking, man, uh, they've been there a few years. Isn't, shouldn't this be fixed by now? But it wasn't. And they were being reproached for it. And folks, this caused Nehemiah great sorrow because he's concerned about the work of God. You see, if you're concerned about the work of God, you're concerned about those who are serving the Lord, and you're concerned about the circumstances that surround that, and you're concerned about God receiving the glory. You see, Israel were, is where, Jerusalem was where God had chosen to have his name dwell, and it was in shambles. And if you care about the Lord, you care about that, by the way. So let's take a look at the response of Nehemiah. He's a godly man, and he has a highly valued position, but we're going to see he's ready to give that up for a little while to go help his brothers and sisters. He's willing to go take on that reproach to help them, to help them. Notice his response. Now it came about, verse 4, when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Serious stuff. This tore Nehemiah up. You want to know if you care about the work of God when you hear difficult circumstances for God's servants. It's going to tear you up and it's going to drive you to pray for them and not just pray for them, to help them, as we're going to see. He was broken up. It affected him. It says he was, he, he sat down and he wept and he mourned for days. It really affected him. It really affected him. And folks, when there's opposition to our brothers and sisters and we see that opposition, it should cause us to be grieved over it, to want to help them, to pray for them. I read this earlier, but in James chapter 5, is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Nehemiah goes right to prayer. Nehemiah goes right to prayer. 2 Corinthians chapter 2.26, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is, is honored, all the members rejoice with it. We should be so tightly knit together as a body in Christ that when one is suffering, we are coming alongside and suffering with them. We are sympathizing, we are praying, we are concerned. He sat down and wept, he mourned for days, 
And it says he was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And we're going to see he was praying. It was ongoing prayer, but there was a point to his prayer because we're going to get to chapter 2, which is about two to three months later, where he finally prays for that specific opportunity to go before the king to make his request. And that is what this prayer leads into in chapter 1. He says, I was fasting in prayer before the God of heaven. What's this fasting stuff? I don't have time to share uh, all about fasting. You can get the, the teaching I did in the book of Matthew, chapter 6, 16, I think it is. Um, there's a lot in there, and it, I go through every portion of it. So, But I'm just going to give a little overview real quick to understand what this is. Well, simply, fasting is voluntarily going without food. That's it. It is a voluntary abstinence. And God never commanded anyone to fast except on the Day of Atonement. Voluntary. And as we see with true believers, not the hypocrites who are doing it to get man's approval and they would not wash themselves. What's, what's wrong with him? Oh, he's fasting, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, here we see it as an act of devotion to God alone. We're going to see later on that Nehemiah wasn't unkept because he was fasting when he went before the king. He was sad, and there's a difference. There's a difference. You see, fasting is a voluntary abstinence, and it is an act of devotion before God alone. And it is almost seen exclusively in the context of prayer, and it is an act of dependence. Within that, it's an act of humility. And guess what? When things are difficult, you don't want to eat. And so he was fasting before the Lord. Notice what it says here. He was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. That's who it was for. That's who it was about. This was not for man, it was for God. Nehemiah is a godly man, and we're going to see that in his prayer in a moment. We're going to just really touch on it as we close, and we're going to look at it in depth next week. He's a man who was deeply affected by the report because he understood that was God's work, God's servants that were being approached and it was God's place that was in shambles. So then he's doing this for the God of heaven, before the God of heaven. Now again, we're going to look at this in more depth next week, but let's just walk through the prayer to the end of the chapter and then we'll come back and look at it in more detail because it's really wonderful to see what he does. But this will help us in our understanding of Nehemiah's grief. So it says in verse 4, Now it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech thee, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. That's our God, by the way. Do you ever speak of God in this way? Nehemiah did. He is our great and awesome God. He is the God of heaven. That's who we're coming before. He's not some phony false God on the dashboard of your car. He is the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Tremendous. Nehemiah understands completely who he's praying to, and he comes humbly before him. And he points out his grandeur and he exalts his character. You've got to think about who he is and what he's done when you pray to God, by the way. And he said here, uh, 
he petitions him, let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open to hear the prayer of what? Thy servant. He's his servant. He's serving him as the cupbearer right now, but he is a servant of the living God. And if you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a servant of the living God. You know, you may be a good servant or a bad servant, but you are a servant of the living God. And we're going to see Nehemiah was a good servant. He was a good servant. The prayer of thy servant, which I am praying before thee now, and notice what he says, day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, thy servants. I'm praying for your servants, the sons of Israel. I'm praying for these guys that are in distress. I'm praying for them. I'm praying for them. Brothers and sisters, I hear of those who pray for me and the difficulties we've gone through, and I thank you and praise God so much. It is encouragement to me to know that people are praying for me. And we need to pray for one another as we serve our great God together. So he has a petition on behalf of the sons of Israel, the servants. Nehemiah is praying for the Jews in Jerusalem who have left Persia, who they left their comfy lives to serve God in Judah. Uh, he is making intercession concerning them. And he says here, they and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, thy servants. And notice what he says confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. He identifies himself, by the way. And my fa- and I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments nor statutes nor ordinances which thou hast thus command thy servant Moses. He is personally and corporately confessing. And notice he's going to remind God of the promises here and make it a basis of his position. Look at verse uh, 8. Remember the word which thou didst command thy servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. There's some principles here. Some of you have been scattered all over the place because you're not serving the Lord. Obey the Lord, confess your sin, and he'll gather you up in a sense to serve him where he wants you to serve him. You're not where he wants you to be, but he'll gather you and bring you there. And so he is reminding them of this promise that if they turn and confess that he will gather them, and that's what's happening as these Jews are in the land serving now. They have been regathered in a sense there. And notice what he says to the place, uh, and he says here, and I will gather them there and bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. The Lord identified with Israel in Jerusalem. And so here, he says here, and they are the servants, people whom thou dost redeem with thy power and by thy strong hand. And then thus the petition, look at verse 11. O Lord, I beseech thee, may thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and the prayer of thy servants who have, who delight and revere thy name. Listen to the prayer of those who delight to revere your name. That's us. That's what he's saying. Thy servant, and he says, and make thy servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man that I was the cupbearer to the king. Evidently, this is the final prayer of all that praying that he has. Now he's going to pray again before he's in, in uh, the, the king's presence, but he's been praying. 
He's been praying, and he's been praying on behalf of these Jews and on behalf of the place that God had caused to have his name dwell. His name dwell. Make thy servant successful. Folks, this is an ongoing prayer of Nehemiah, which culminates in his request in which he's going to go before the king. And we're going to see that in the next few weeks. So why did this report that he got tear up Nehemiah so much? That he would be willing to leave his job and go help these Jews? Why did it tear him up so much? Well, we saw the answer. Nehemiah said he is the Lord's servant. And he delights to revere in thy name. And those who are the Lord's servants and delight to revere in thy name are concerned about others who are the Lord's servants. And they're concerned about God's name. It affected Nehemiah a lot. Do the difficulties that your brothers and sisters for serving Christ go through affect you? To bring you to your knees that you would be willing to help out? That you'd be willing to encourage whatever it might be how God has gifted you? Now, Nehemiah, we're going to see, had some natural talents in the context of serving the Lord, and God is going to use those very greatly. Are you willing to be used by the Lord in the midst of difficulties? Because as we go forward as a church, we've got difficulties. I'll tell you that right now. I need to be encouraged. And I know as we go forth in the context of the opposition that we face and are facing, uh, we could be tempted to be discouraged. But God doesn't want that. He wants us to be encouraged because he's going to take the opposition, as we'll see here in Nehemiah, he's going to turn it out and use it for good. He's going to use it for good. Well, let me ask you this. Are you a servant of the Lord? Do you delight with those who revere his name? Are you one who cares about Christ and about him being exalted? Well, if you are, then I can tell you that you're concerned about the ministry. How can we know if we're concerned about the ministry? How can we know if we are concerned? We're going to have a concern about his people and about his work. And we're going to see that in this book. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. It is so encouraging to read. I thank you that you were the one that uh, stirred up Nehemiah, that you're the one that brought about the report for him to hear. You're the one that brought him there to use him, Lord God, to strengthen and encourage those servants. And Lord, I thank you that although you've declared that we're going to have opposition and difficulty, that we should take heart because you have overcome the world. And Father, we know that you want us to be encouraged, not discouraged. And so I pray that we would learn from this book as we begin this study, and that as we step out of the task that you have for us as a church, that we would be and learn, we would be like Nehemiah, and we would learn from what we see here for your glory. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.